So what happens to a circle if there is no center? See, we're so used to having everything sort of come in to the vortex of where we are that all sense data seems to come in this way, doesn't it? Substantiating something as it hits. And we try so desperately to move beyond that that meeting place, that point where everything meets. We try all kinds of ways to get over it, to get through it, to get around it. And we intimate somehow that spirituality has an awful lot to do with where all these things are meeting. And if we ever looked at the alternative, <laughs> if we ever asked the question, what is this, what's, what's the shape a circle takes without a center? What does the u- universe look like when it has no center? We might not be in such a hurried <laughs> journey towards that discovery because it becomes infinite. No center, no circumference. And that gives us pause. But we love, we love the task at hand and how many of us conceive it. Demolishing that center, getting, uprooting that center. We even talk about uprooting. Uprooting that center. And so there's nothing that the sense, the center likes better than to, than to be given a task to undermine itself. That really, that, there's nothing that it enjoys more than being given and a task towards its own demise. That'll really get it going. So we have to understand what we're doing. We have to understand what this journey is about. And it, it feels um, saddened to me, uh, for lack of a better word, that many of us are set off on this journey long before we have any sense of where or what we're even moving towards or where we're even going. And so much of our trials and tribulations, so much of our energy goes into substantiating the center. 
and we feel as if we're getting somewhere. But really we're just consolidating our territory. What is the practice? What are we doing? You see, we just look at the existential condition of ourselves. We see that most of us believe that we have a starting place and an ending place. We could say, for instance, that the skin sort of represents a boundary between myself and that which I could not call myself. And that that boundary of the organism to the environment is a kind of line that we have drawn. It's a very um, shaky boundary. Let me just show you how shaky it is. Because we don't realize that it's a conceptual boundary. We think it's a factual boundary. But if you just uh, will close your eyes for a moment and just feel what your body feels like as an experience, releasing the concept of body or I within that experience. Don't bring the sense of body, the idea of body, or the idea of I into the experience of the sensations of, that are going on within that organism, within this organism. You can see that from an experiential point of view, it's very vague what is in there. It's not defined at all. Very uncertain. Where it stops and where it starts is, I guess, at best, and yet, when we open our eyes and look into a mirror, we see a very clear outline, very clear delineation of surface and non-surface. Never realizing that that is created through language, through an idea, through concept. That the actual experience of this thing is not anything like the way we shape it in our minds. So there, there is a circumstantial boundary. But even then, we don't really feel that we, we are the body. We feel we own a body. It's more like that. It's more like ownership, isn't it? It's like I own a body. I have a body. But it's not really me. It's not where I reside. So where do I reside? You see, well, now I have to separate the body into sections because there's the top three inches, which is where I reside, and the bottom five and a half feet where I don't, right? So somehow we've some crawled into this space up here. <laughs> Yet if we know anything about the mind and body, we, there isn't a clear place where it stops and the body begins. In fact, I 
literally do not have an idea of the separation of body and mind anymore. That boundary has gone for me. To think that I'm up here just is not there. That's just not the way I perceive. Yet most of us do think we're crowded in this little corner of the body. Yet the experience as we move with body-mind, body-slash-mind, is the body holds so much of mind. And that where the mind ends, for instance, emotions emanate from the center of the chest and outward. In fact, I was sharing with somebody before the retreat started, I was just reading in the paper about somebody who had a totally artificial heart implanted in their body called a Jarvis heart. And uh, this man was a very empathetic, feeling person prior to his operation. And then they interviewed him several months after the operation and he was back doing everything physically that he always could do and was having no problem whatsoever with this miraculous mechanical invention except he said, I can't, I don't have any feelings. I have no, I have no, there's no sense of the intuitive, there's no sense of emotion. I'm just, I'm dead in feeling, he said. So where does the mind be? Where's the mind in body? Where is that? But for the sake of our boundary formation, we put a dotted line around this and stake out this territory as me. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Now I can locate myself in a little more refined space, a little narrow space, getting a little cramped. I mean, I've moved from <laughs> everything to body. And now I'm moving from body to a corner of the body. And lo and behold, when I look at the mind, that's not all acceptable either. I'm not always in there. I've cornered myself off from much of the mind. There are parts of the mind that I won't associate with at all. I don't think are me and I don't want any part of. And so I've drawn a, I've drawn a line down through the middle of my mind. In fact, it's not even the middle. Most of it I don't want. Most of it's trash. <laughs> it's trash, trash talking. I'm not, that's not me. And so we have an acceptable part and an unacceptable part. And the acceptable part tries to ranker the unacceptable part into its will and control shames its way in there, guilts its way, points its finger, does all sorts of abusive things to limit its access and its power and to empower that which we really feel we are, which becomes, as we begin to look at it, very narrowed space. And then we become a meditator. And lo and behold, we begin to see the mind and all of its different manifestations. None of it's me. But there's a watcher. There's somebody back there watching. And that teeny little thing, microscopic, seems to hold me. All the mind isn't me anymore. But this little (laughs) nugget 
And so even, so we've narrowed it down even further. And we just keep establishing boundaries all along the way, don't we? And except for that last boundary, most of the boundaries are really areas of deep fear where we have, uh, well, we refuse to travel. Externally, it's too uh, chaotic out there. In fact, one of the real beautiful integrations that I feel is happening is between science and mysticism. And science, when it looks at the very uh, ingredients or experience of what uh, life is at its microscopic level, sees that it is chaotic at that level. At the microscopic level, at the very small, it's chaotic. So chaotic that it's unpredictable. In fact, two things can happen at the same time. Much like the spiritual stories of saints, things all of a sudden disappear in front of your eyes. You can't point to the exact location of anything, only a proximity of where that thing might be. And it's all coming and going at such a rapid flux and indication that it's completely out of completely out of the sense of any sort of smooth, logical way to work with life. And yet when we look through our eyes at the surrounding world, we see it very smooth, it's very predictable, it's very known, it's very um, certain. It's not chaotic at all. And so what, what has happened at that boundary to make it smooth? What has the mind done to the universe of things to smooth it out so that it can have a predictability? What's well, given, it's laced everything with thought. It's placed thought. It's covered. It's painted the world with thought. And now thought holds a particular shape and reference, just as we pointed out in terms of the mirror image of my body. It does that to the whole world. And so the experiential component of the universe is released. And what I have lived with now is the thought, the conceptual universe, because it's uniform, it's smooth, it's predictable, it's navigable. There are times in people's practice where they sink below thought. And when we begin to feel the universe below the level of thought or concept about it, it becomes unpredictable again. In fact, it often feels like it's a physical earthquake. Things rapidly coming, going, and just disappearing back into the chaos of the small. So we're not very far from that chaotic feeling. And it's not small. It's just that we have covered it over with thinking. And many people's practice reasserts itself back into that truth. And often what accompanies that journey of 
non-conceptual awareness at that level is fear. Fear arises in that moment when we see the world so chaotic. And we can then see why we have placed the coding of thought upon all things, as we have done, is to give it some certainty so that I, the organism can stay intact and navigate and find food, nourish itself. And at each boundary level, we have a reason for hiding out from the rest of that boundary. Why has the mind cut itself off from the organism? Because the organism gets old. It ages. It's fragile. And for us not to have a boundary between ourselves and the body means that I too will be that fragile. And have an ending. And why has the mind fractured itself again into a boundary between what is acceptable and what is not? It's because as I pull back further and further into myself, away from what I don't like, the image of who I am becomes stronger, becomes more tenacious, and more defined. And when we get up into the mind of what's acceptable and what's not, so too, many of our states of mind just don't, aren't acceptable given the image that we are promoting ourselves to be. And every time we pull back from something, the story of ourselves becomes a component part of that pulling back. And the image of what we are who pulls back becomes stronger. And so really what the spiritual journey is, is in eliminating boundaries. Now this is a very interesting thing because I forever, when I give this talk, get notes from people who say, I've spent my whole life giving myself away, not having enough boundary. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about uh, setting limits. I'm not talking about giving ourselves away here. I'm talking about where I start and where I end. I'm talking about the sense of me, not setting limits, not my ability to say no. or to take myself into my own heart. So let's not confuse that, those two. Talking about something very, very different here. In a set of boundaries, you see, it's interesting, when the mind doesn't like or disagrees with something, it sets a new boundary. This is unacceptable. And it does that now just as a reflex action. It's, it's territorially wise. And it knows if it can gatekeep what's acceptable and what's not. And plus, it has this enormous ability to think itself a new, a new uh, reality. So that if this reality isn't acceptable, it just fabricates a new one. It cuts itself off from this one, denies the existence, 
denies any relationship to it and establishes a fictional, imaginary daydream and lives in accordance with that. And when it's given the challenge of ending boundaries, of eliminating boundaries, of seeing that the boundaries we've created in fear are just conceptual boundaries, and to bring back the full organism's relationship to the environment and to itself, it does it by establishing more boundaries, which is nonsensical. It says, I will get there through the tried and true techniques and remedies that I've always used. And so when there's pain, that's not that's not it. I'm not going to have anything to do with that or whatever it might be. We just keep creating more boundaries on our way to trying to find boundarylessness space. So something's wrong there. We can't keep setting boundaries to find that which has no boundaries. Can't keep using the same mechanisms that got us into this fix to begin with as we turn this thing around to try to end. So we have to use a new strategy. What is it? And I ask you this. What is it that has no boundaries? That has never been tied or staked or territorial? See, when you want an airplane, for instance, and you're flying from one part of the states to another, you look down on the countryside and there are no cities demarcations or states where the lines of the states are. You don't see any boundary formation at all. The plane flies right across one endless continuum. And everything, when we're down here, the Texans and the Californians and the Washingtonians and the Oregonians and all of us have our particular identities. But that's not, where is it? You just rise a foot above the land and you see none of that. What is it that has no boundaries? What is it that ties the world into a whole? And perhaps we should use that as the solution for our boundary formation. See, what is it that separates the noise of the train whistle from the quiet that surrounds it? Where does one thing stop and another thing end? Where does one experience change into another? Is there a place where it absolute, where nothing moves, where nothing, everything is absolutely unchangeable? But to get there, 
we have to own the boundaries we have. We have to look at why we have created these boundaries, what we have established them for, what we gain from them, the value we have in creating boundaries. If we don't do that, then all we'll be doing is reacting negatively to the boundaries we have and making them unacceptable and thereby creating new boundaries and new objections, new resistances, which are what is a, what a boundary is, is just a resistance to something, to the set of boundaries we already have. Unless we understand what it is that we're getting out of them, what we feel we're doing this for, and each boundary has a reason, has something that we are getting out of it. That's the reason where we are, we've set this line, this territory. And we also, conversely, have to see the limitations of doing just that. And what are the limitations? It's the pain associated with keeping something out. It's the territorial guardedness and defensiveness we have to have in order to have a boundary secured. And the resistance and the anxiety of trespassing across that boundary. And the tension that's continuous along all the boundaries that we've established. And we also have to feel secure within the boundaries we have before we'll move out to rip apart the fence posts, release the resistance of those boundaries and move out into the new territory. We can't do this neurotically is another way of saying this. We can't do this to get over ourselves because we hate ourselves. We want a new territory to plan ourselves in. And so within each of these areas, we have to have and develop self-love. We start with the persona of where I think myself to be in the shadow of what I want no part of. And we have to bring those two halves together. We have to see that it's one mind. It's one mind, not two minds in contention with one another. But one, we have to make it one mind. And we do this through seeing what it is we have objected to and bringing a sense of allowance and acceptability to the entire sense of me, not just to a portion. And thereby we move to each boundary from sanity, from stability, and movement and challenge the resistance once more. By challenging, I mean questioning it, looking at it. Does this need it? Do I need to, to hide like this? Do I need this level of fear and tension in my life? What is it giving me? And what is it? how is it depleting me? And is it true now why I'm, what I'm hiding from? Is there really something scary and harmful on the other side of that? Let me explore this question. So everywhere there is pain, and this is another way of saying the same thing, there's a boundary formation. Because the pain is a resistance. I'm talking about suffering, contraction, not just unpleasant experiences, but the contraction around the unpleasant. And therefore there's something unconsciously being protected at that level. To move into the unconscious, protected, where there is uh, the unconscious protection and defensiveness, and to examine it again, to look at it, 
removes that boundary. Sometimes it's almost cathartic how it explodes out. The energy that we have held within comes exploding out uproariously. But each time it's with less, the system has less tension, less anxiety, less fear, more contentment, greater well-being. Each time we remove the fence post that separated part of ourselves from another, Now there is something that I feel is very important, something we have to master in order for boundaries to be removed. And for those of you who have been around my teaching for some time, I know this is in some ways a review of a principle. But for others, I think it's a very important principle to teach. And that is radical accountability. This sense of radical accountability. Because one of the ways, and perhaps the um, chief way, boundaries are formed. That line of contention, that line of contraction, of defensiveness is by throwing things that are unacceptable where I live on the safe side of that boundary and pushing them across the boundary line to the unacceptable. It's called projection. And mentally we can do that with a lot of ease. And we're very, very um, proficient at it. We can take what we don't like within ourselves and unconsciously, because this whole thing has an unconscious action, give it to somebody who's innocent but is acting in accordance to how I think I would act if I held that particular quality. So I will take this quality and I will give that person the quality that I dislike and then I will react to that person so that I don't have to hate myself. Never realizing that it's that very thing I'm doing which has created the problem to begin with. But it makes it safe now. I can now live within my own territory and hate that which is outside, increasing the tension between myself and that boundary. And that happens very quickly. Projection is the most complicit way that we do that with the world, but we do that through blame and accusation and finger pointing and gossiping, and on and on. See, all of these qualities of wise speech and all of it really have to do with boundary formation. And at the center of all of this is the Dharma, is that which is profoundly connected. And what we're doing on the side where we don't feel connected at all but disconnected is eliminating the disconnection so that we can find a way back or re-enter that which is connected. 
We don't have to create the connected. It's already there. We just have to eliminate the fear, release the fear is a better way of saying it, release the fear that has established a boundary that makes me feel as if I am disconnected. Because it's only an assumption that I'm disconnected. So I have to examine the boundaries. Nothing really happens. It's just the story of fear and the release of that tension and contraction that fear has brought. And reowning or reallowing myself to merge again, to come back into that which always has been a part of me, but which I have just conceptually cut myself off from. That's all. And radical accountability allows, this is a system for doing just that. Radical accountability says there are no others. It starts with the principle of things being together. It says there are no others to blame. I do not, I can no longer, everything is held within this space and is my, I'm accountable, the sense of this consciousness is accountable for everything that arises. This consciousness. There is no finger pointing, no blame. And in the moment there is blame, I use that as a cue for the fact that I've just established a boundary. And if I'm interested in spirituality pulled by the longing of connection, I will use that boundary that I just created in the blame to re-own the issue that I just threw outside of myself and gave to someone else. It's never about the other. Never about the other. I don't like absolutes. But in spirituality, it's all absolutes. It's never about the other. And each of us look for a Hitler factor that can prove that it is about the other. I'm not owning that guy as my problem. I'm sorry. Each of us have the Genghis Khan in our life. (laughs) Our father usually or parent or someone who is completely unacceptable to bring back in, to open our heart to. And some of us have had reason because of the traumas that we've had at the expense of another person. And so what I know what I'm asking from you, and I'm not asking for us to rip up the stakes and land ho and just, but sometimes it takes an enormous amount of patience and work, years of work, before we can ever open our heart to someone again. If ever. It may not be that we can do that in this lifetime. But for many of us who haven't had that degree of trauma, it's time for us to start sharing space in our hearts. So in radical accountability, I perceive it or can can conceive it as being a closed chamber. This 
everything perceived is a closed chain. There's nothing outside of this consciousness. There's nothing to point to. It's all pointing back in. Whenever there's anger, there's no... This, who's having this emotion anyway? To own it, to be accountable to it. To say, okay, this is, this is mine to work with. It's not because of you. You do not make me angry. I pain myself. I anger myself. I disappoint myself. You do not make me happy. I happiness, I happy myself. <laughs> I gladden myself. I don't know. I refuse to do that because I know that in I, if I do not do that, all I've done is cut myself off and made my, made my own territory thinner much more precariously perched in my own little space, much more fearful and tentative. As the space gets smaller, the fear gets greater. My territory gets smaller and I become more defensive. And I realize that that contraction finally squeezes and suffocates me. And so I'm breathing it out now. There is no outside. It's all here to be dealt with here as a, as a consciousness. But I do not let any seepage, us, any, even a molecule across the line. This is hermetically sealed. This is airtight. Nothing can move across this space. If anything does, heaven and hell are infinitely far apart. So I sit here. It's never about the other. And I also have the intentionality of moving towards the difficult because unconsciously there are still areas of myself that are well defended and I'm, that, that are abrasive and that I am going to fight for my survival. And, but that's unconscious. So when I move towards the difficult, I'm making the unconscious conscious. What am I doing? I'm making that which I have led put placed outside of my one consciousness, I'm bringing it into the one mind. Bringing it back in. The only way we can reorganize and re-emerge with something is to make it conscious too. We can't have any relationship to that which is not conscious. We can have a complete relationship to that which is. So everything has to be made conscious. No rubs in this game. Now, I want to make it very clear that even though this is a closed space and a one mind in order to work it in this fashion, that doesn't place the blame. No longer can I externalize it, so I internalize it. And it's all my fault. That's not the right formula for releasing boundaries. So along with this comes a deepening understanding of what myself is. And that without boundaries there is no myself. 
It's just consciousness. And as soon as I make the problem mine, I've got a new boundary. And that doesn't work. That's insanity. So I no longer finger point even back to myself. No self-blame. Now what am I going to do? I have nowhere to point. Now things can genuinely be perceived as impersonal. Because we're not moving with anything. It's only through the fear of what those things contain and implicate and how I'm implicated in relationship to them that I have ever moved at all anyway. When I refuse to point, when I refuse to judge, when I refuse, and when I do see judgment, I see that as a, an intentionality to boundary form. So I'm, I catch it. Okay, there's judgment there. What's happening is that there's some part of me that feels disadvantaged. And the way I can gain footing in the logic of the mind is to judge somebody else, which like a teeter-totter lowers their head while it raises mine. But it only lasts as long as the concept lasts and then the teeter-totter swings back to the way we believe ourselves to be, which is disadvantaged. That's why judgment doesn't work. We just keep going like this. It feels good. It gives us a momentary relief of the pressure we put ourselves under. But unfortunately, the weight shifts and we're back on the bottom. And so it doesn't work to judge. So I have to look at the pain that's driving the judgment. You see, we, wherever it goes, wherever it goes, I don't care where it goes, there's a ruthlessness to the heart. There's a ruthlessness to love. Not ruthless in um, vicious or vengeful or even uh, insensitive. But by God, when it sees something that is not true, it is on top of that thing. And will not waver. And when it starts seeking out those areas of ourself that need to be conscious, that are unconscious, and need the infusion of awareness, the infusion of consciousness to, to allow them to reform, to take their rightful place, because love allows everything to take its rightful place. And when something is unconscious, that's not its rightful place. That is the mind's fear and containment of that thing. Everything is meant to be conscious because that's its rightful place in things. Whether we like them or not, whether they're agreeable to us or not, has nothing to do with it. This is a total sum game And any rub invites that 
ruthlessness. And somehow, that goes hand in hand with self-kindness. Because when we are that sincere, we are that self-accepting. And that ruthlessness has our heart at its stake. Not our heart individually, but the heart universally. For it understands that nothing is complete until all things are complete. And that it's only the mind and its fear that could ever create the perception that something could be incomplete. So it is unrelenting in its drive towards conscious living, conscious being. And that's the meditation. And that's the spiritual journey. Let's not be fooled by what we do. Let's not externalize a trip of getting over ourselves or the labor intensive of an obstacle course or running the gauntlet. But rather, abiding in the one heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.